Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Hospitality Minnesota braces for winter amid COVID-19, rail safety, and high school fall sports back in business. But first, a State House subcommittee met for the first time this week to discuss racial justice. I spoke with the committee's co-chair, Representative Rena Moran, about race in Minnesota. This subcommittee came out of our resolution declaring racism as a public health crisis. And so this first meeting is really to help members um, hear a definition of racism. So we're going to try to put that out to get a better understanding what racism is. Um, and hopefully we will also get some other definitions, um, some clarity around other different definitions around disparities and equity and things like that. Um, But it's really the introduction um, on a very hard subject area to talk about out loud, to one, help hopefully members become comfortable with the subject area um, without, you know, um, taking on any personal um, feelings about that, but to hear about it. And from there, we will look at infant mortality and morbidity, um, which uh, would help us, I believe, as as a legislature to better understand um, the impact of racism on um, pregnancy, childbirth, um, and early health. I want to say early health outcome, but the um, just an awareness about the impact of um, racism or discrimination on our um, on, on 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 health on health outcomes, and so that would be the gist of the the very first uh, hearing. When you talk about defining racism on its face, that sounds like, okay, that that could be an easy thing because you are (laughs) defining something. But on the other hand, uh, this is something that I think we've had a a real hard time defining in this country for hundreds of years. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk about what the challenges are with that as a lawmaker. Yeah, you know, nothing is easy or simple. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Um, and it will be a challenge to, I think that this subcommittee, and I, I just really thank and appreciate every member who volunteered to be on this subcommittee to talk about racism or to learn about racism or to be in, uh, in relationship with others who want to either hear, learn, or talk about it because it is not an easy subject to talk about or for some to even validate that it's even real. And so, um, and I think this, this first meeting is just going to set a, a foundation for many other hearings to come after, but give us 
some some um, and hopefully if we're good at what we do today that we will create a space where members will feel open enough to want to move forward on what do this thing about racism what is this about what do this look like right and I think what happens is that we have to have this dialogue we have to have this um, information shared we have to look at evidence and what the science tell it it's not so much about what we think and how we feel because the feelings you know allows what uh, have us react in many different ways and so um, this first meeting was just kind of like set a, a, a base for many other information and knowledge from experts who can help us as a legislative body be more clear, have more clarity around how we can look at policies and practices that will um, move us away just from the, uh, looking at this through an individual type of mindset. Representative, how much of an uphill battle do you think that you face uh, addressing racism with a state legislature that is primarily Caucasian? And then you add on top of that uh, political differences that folks may have. Well, that's an uphill battle, Scott. I mean, quite frankly, right? Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's like so much that we bring to uh, the table or bring in to committees where politics is at the forefront of how we think about moving our state forward. Um, and there's two different ideologies. It's, 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 you know, it's in, um, I always say, you know, politics gets in the way of, sometimes gets in the way of us doing good things, moving forward, being open to different um, viewpoints. Um, so in saying that, this subject area is probably even more difficult because we're talking about race and racism and prejudice and discrimination and all these tough world, words that some people can take on and make them personal and want to defend it. And so we are, uh, I can speak for myself, uh, are under no um, illusion that... Um, this is going to be something easily welcome, right? Or mindsets are going to be changed automatically. But what we do know, this is a much-needed dialogue, and I think it's a much-needed dialogue with legislators in the state of Minnesota. Since in the state of Minnesota, we have some of the worst disparities within all of our systems. And so I I hope by the end of this um uh, of of these uh, subcommittee hearings, that at the basics, that legislators are not at the same point that they were when we had our first meeting. By the time we have our last meeting, my hope is at the minimum is that um, that they have grown some, have learned some more new information, more knowledgeable, more insightful. The subcommittee on racial justice is set to meet again next month. Thank you to my guest, State Representative Rena Moran. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Tim Veldy is a Minnesota farmer from Henley Falls and director on a rural electric co-op board. Rural electric co-ops were formed to provide electricity to rural Minnesota when no one else would do it and have now gone into trying to get broadband across rural Minnesota. Small businesses and students rely on it, especially now. When Congress put all that at risk with a tax law that ended up hurting rural communities, Senator Smith was the first person we went to. Senator Smith listened to us, understood our problem, crafted a bill and got it passed and signed into law with bipartisan support. Senator Smith was instrumental in saving economic development for rural Minnesota families. Senator Smith is great to work with. She wants to understand the problem. She wants to fix the problem. I'm Tina Smith, candidate for U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. Paid for by Tina Smith from Minnesota. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As we're moving quickly into the fall, the dissipation of patio dining and decreasing recreational travel threatens to crush many businesses that continue to be extremely fragile during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. Liz Raymer, president and CEO of Hospitality Minnesota, says if Governor Walls doesn't move the dial ahead immediately to phase four, it could lead to more Minnesota businesses closing their doors for good. Liz, can you give us a brief update about what you are hearing and seeing from businesses in the hospitality sector? Well, it has been truly a difficult year for really all aspects of the hospitality industry in Minnesota. Uh, It is different depending on where you may be located and the type of business you have. Some have fared better than others, Um, but there's no doubt that this is a long recovery involved for all aspects of our industry. You know, as we uh, look at the greater Minnesota area, um, it was impacted on the leisure travel ban and other aspects that were shut down and not permitted to open uh, before the Memorial Day weekend holiday. And for many of our resort, uh, campground, outfitters, um, all of those kinds of folks, they were impacted pretty dramatically with a number of cancellations that not only affected them into the early summer, but well into the fall, especially for those facilities that um, really cater to folks that are coming from out of state, uh, multi-generation groups that may gather at a resort, for example, for a family reunion, or and or events such as weddings and other larger groups. So um, again, all of those um, situations are different depending on the type of uh, facility that you run and the kind of customer that you um, cater to. So you know we're hearing from some of our folks in Greater Minnesota that they've done really well. Um, you know, all things considered, and I, I put that in parens, all you know, really well because they're still. Uh, in most cases, um, down by 30% versus a year ago. Some are way higher than that, closer to 65, 75%. Again, just depends on um, what you do and where you are located. Um, Some of the folks that uh, are positioned near the border of Canada uh, fared well because they were able to garner some uh, fill-ins for those cancellations from fishing trips that would normally be able to go and plan to go into Canada and of course, we know that border remains closed. So that's been um, somewhat of a uh, silver lining for those particular uh, locations. Um, and when we look at the um, 
metro area, um, in all metros, um, that's a very different situation. And um, I think as we look at different sectors, too, um, you look at events, uh, the events sector is really hugely impacted because of being limited to a 25% uh, capacity um, that has obvious implications for things like weddings and other larger events and also for restaurants and other food service businesses um, that take advantage of events being in town, including uh, really concerts and uh, sporting events and theater and all those things that people come to a metro area to partake in. Liz, I know you folks are pushing the state to turn the dial and allow bars and restaurants to raise restaurant capacity to 75% and event capacity to 50%. Why the urgency? A lot of these operators are looking ahead to the lean fall and winter months and are doing the math. Um, their PPP money is running out and there is no agreement on the federal level for another round of support. And so that's why you're starting to see some decisions being made about permanent closures right now. Um, restaurants are hugely impacted by this. They are thin margin businesses to begin with. Um, they are not able to make uh, a profit at all, really, at 50% capacity. The patio and outdoor dining gives them, essentially, if they have that ability with, a, you know, an outdoor seated facility, they are able to bring in roughly, you know, 50% more revenue right now, which helps keep them afloat. Thanks again to my guest, Liz Raymer, President and CEO of Hospitality Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's Rail Safety Month in Minnesota. Reporter J.W. Cox spoke with a transportation safety advocate about how they hope to reach people with the important message of, when you see tracks, think train. Scott, as a part of the Week of Awareness, Operation Lifesaver Executive Director Cheryl Cummings says their enforcement campaign is a key part of spreading their message. Operation Clear Track is one of the largest single-day um, enforcement events, uh, and what it does is it brings all of the partners um, from the local law enforcement level all the way up to the national level and Amtrak and other transportation partners together to really have that conversation and raise awareness to the power of educating the public about making safer decisions around tracks and trains. Cheryl, what are the biggest takeaways you want participants to get from Operation ClearTrack? Obviously, the most important thing we want people to take away from any of the experiences or um, messages that we're sharing during Rail Safety Week and throughout the year is to just be aware um, that whenever we see tracks, we should always be expecting a train, always be thinking train. Um, in that effort, you know, we're trying to raise awareness, trying to help stop some of these track tragedies. Um, some of the ways that the law enforcement partners and first responders are helping to raise that awareness um, is a little bit different this year than what they have done in the past. Um, in the past, we've really encouraged them to be out in their communities with the ongoing pandemic and other issues. Um, we're really transitioning to sharing a lot more information virtually, um, which is a great experiment. We're hoping it's still successful in getting that message out to the public. 
as we sit here today, how big of an issue are rail accidents across the state and country and what progress has been made? Operation Lifesaver, um, since the very beginning, has always focused on what we call the three E's. Primarily, it's education. That's one of the areas that we focus on. And both the engineering and the enforcement, we feel, are just as much tools as the education portion is. Um, What those tools do are give people the power to make safer decisions around tracks and trains. Um, Because ultimately, it is up to us. You know, we have to make that decision whether we're going to stop, whether we're going to wait, or whether we're going to refrain from trespassing. Um, What that has resulted in is that over the last 40 years, we've seen a huge decline in the number of collisions that are occurring between vehicles and trains. Um, The downside with that is that even though those um, collisions are reduced, you're still about 20 times more likely to either be killed or seriously injured in a collision with a train than with any other vehicle. What's more alarming is that we've looked at the statistics and year over year in the last several years, the number of people who have lost their lives as a result of trespassing on railroad tracks has continued to increase. What are the continuing steps needed even when this week and month pass? Even though... We do focus um, really heavily on this week. We feel like this is an issue that goes unnoticed a lot of times throughout the year. It's something that people really get complacent about very easily. Um, Obviously, complacency is one of the number one, um, you know, reasons that collisions um, and incidents occur um, because we're we're not expecting to see that train if we cross those tracks every single day and there's not one there most of the time, but trains can run on any track in any direction at any time. And it's our job, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're always um, yielding to them because they can take a very long time to stop. They are much quieter than most people realize. And they also um, can be much further away and approaching much faster than um, most people would be able to see. Um, it's actually an optical illusion that would prevent us from being able to judge when that train is actually going to arrive at that crossing. So one thing we always do is make sure that people are aware that our national website at oli.org is available year-round. We have PSAs, we have presentations, videos, we have free lesson plans for educators, and a whole host of other information, resources, and statistics that are available to the public 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we hope that people will use those and share them with the people that matter. What are some of the other initiatives going on in conjunction with Rail Safety Month? One of the other initiatives that we're really focusing on are sidewalk stencils that we have developed. Uh, We've been working with a partner we have these uh, polyvinyl stencils, and they are of the C-Tracks Think Train logo. Again, you know, very straightforward message that we hope to share. Those stencils um, are designed to enable us to actually spray that logo directly onto sidewalks. Um, our focus is on pedestrian crossings, obviously, because it's so easy for us, even as pedestrians, to be distracted um, or complacent or in a hurry. And so that's one way that we're trying really hard in a number of communities across the state to 
help raise awareness, help bring that message into the communities in a way that is still safe um, and keeping people socially distant. To get involved, you can visit oli.org. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Up next, MN Sports Director Mike Grimm has a preview of high school fall sports when Minnesota Matters returns. Hi, this is Josh Thompson. This is Rocco Baldelli. This is Nelson Cruz. Something, Something big, big is coming. coming. 735,000 people in this area will face hunger this year. Join us in the Home Teams versus Hunger Initiative and bid on amazing items, unique experiences, and autographed merchandise packages. See the amazing work all over Minnesota. $1 donated can provide three meals. To donate, visit twoharvest.org backslash home teams. Join the Home Teams versus Hunger. It's time to come together, Minnesota. Help feed those in need. Change a light bulb, save some green. Just replace traditional light bulbs with energy-efficient bulbs and fixtures. If you're like most people, 20% of your home electric bills go directly to lighting. Every light we switch to one bearing the government's Energy Star label uses at least two-thirds less energy than older bulbs. Such a light will save more than $30 in energy costs over its lifetime. Brighten your environmental future from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. High school football and volleyball will both be played this fall in Minnesota. After all, the Minnesota State High School League Governing Board approved plans for the two sports to have seasons at a special meeting on Monday of this past week. The Board of Directors had previously pushed the two sports to spring in a vote in August. MSHSL Executive Director Eric Martens joined MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm to discuss the new vote and what it means. Lots of consideration, lots of information that's been discussed and reviewed as we have uh, gone through the last five or six weeks. It's been the goal of the board of directors to make sure that we provide the best opportunity we can for our students in the safest way possible at a time that works best. And uh, if we go back to the beginning of August and what people knew at that time, there just wasn't a lot of solid information around what was safe or not safe. And there was a lot of concern about activities in the Minnesota State High School League that could potentially impact the start of school without uh, knowing what that spread of COVID-19 might look like uh, and certainly didn't want schools that would be required to go distance learning or hybrid if that was not their choice. And so the board, I thought, was very thoughtful at that time. And as we've continued to the season, one of the primary aspects that we've seen is that our schools and our athletes have done a great job this fall in the activities that we're currently hosting. They are participating, they are practicing and and competing, and for the most part, they are staying very, very safe, and they're working really hard on that. That's a message that we can all learn from. We need everyone to contribute to the safety of others in order for us to have those things that that we really want to have. As our board continued to watch and, and pay attention to where things were and try and identify when's the best time to try to hold these seasons. We know that traditionally football and volleyball fall in the fall, and with that, there's certainly things around that that make some sense. At the same time, moving it to the spring might be a safer time. It's difficult to know. However, we already have traditional seasons there, and we knew that at the time. Yet when we started, we weren't in a place where we felt that was the best the best plan. As the board continued to review and look at all of the information, including talking to the Department of Health, having our Sports Medicine Advisory Committee chair speak with us as part of the board meeting, and also continue our dialogue that's been ongoing with the Department of Health, the Department of Ed, and the Governor's Office, felt at this time that the board could make a decision if they so chose to move back to a fall start time for these particular activities. 
And so a long dialogue at the board table, we discussed uh, when start times might be, what a length of season could look like, uh, and even things like how far does postseason go as we get started with seasons. And so uh, in the end, uh, the board felt that now was the best time. And at the same time within that, our schools uh, really had the calling to do that as safely as they possibly can to make sure that future seasons also have the same opportunities. It looks too like this this passed overwhelmingly. It wasn't unanimous, but it was an overwhelming vote. I would guess that's based on all of what you just said, as well as um, you know, folks from around the state that that want to see football and volleyball, and that think that uh, if proper protocols continue, that it can happen. I, I think that our board is very very aware both of what's going on within their community and the other communities that they represent. That is certainly a true statement. I think that uh, it was important for them to have as much information about how this could all fit together. Uh, Our Return to Participation Task Force meets regularly to review the situation and continue to provide information to the board on what's safest and how that can happen. So I think when when you create a body of knowledge and folks start to take a look at it routinely, uh, they start to see potentially a a shift in, in how they're feeling about things and what the information is leading them to decide. And so I think that that happened over the course of time. And with a workshop last week that was scheduled a long time ago just to prepare for the October 1 board meeting, out of that workshop came a desire to have a special meeting to consider the placement of fall sports as, as we've known them. Quick rundown, if you can just give us the, the basics. Uh, not great detail, because I know that'll be posted and stuff, but in general terms, it looks like the 28th of September will be the start of practice, and a couple of weeks later will be the start of, uh, I guess a week later would be the start of a potential contest? Exactly. September 28th, the start date for both uh, both volleyball and football. Volleyball can start uh, competing as soon as Thursday the 8th. Uh, football can compete as as soon as Friday the 9th or Saturday the 10th. Volleyball is two matches per week. That's similar to what we have currently in soccer and in swimming and some of our other activities as we go forward. And so that provides for them a a seven-week season, which could have up to 14 matches in it. Um, And in football, currently the model has six weeks for a contest in them in a regular season, so six regular season games and then on into two weeks of postseason that is yet to be determined what the, what the structure would look like there for that postseason. And so that's, the, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what those seasons look like. What are you seeing also, Eric, from other states, particularly the neighboring states, um, in regard to how many games they may be having that are impacted and what the protocols might be to make sure if there is a team that might be exposed that there's an insurance that uh, you know a game has to be postponed to, to keep things safe? Absolutely. We're keeping an eye on that, and we're talking with those folks that are maybe doing some things that we haven't done, and just like they're paying attention to how we're operating our activities. I think that ours have been very, very safe. I've seen and heard good things from uh, some surrounding states, and so I regularly talk to the uh, to the executive directors in North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, uh, Nebraska, et cetera, as, as we learn from them about what they've found out. They have had anywhere from zero games canceled or postponed on a week to maybe a handful of them, depending on where that is. And, and we anticipate, unfortunately, that's going to be the case here in Minnesota as well. We're going to have schools that will be uh, require distance learning and as a result not be able to have competitions for their teams and be able to practice, so they'll have to adjust that. Other states have identified that, that volleyball is, is just, if not more, likely to have those cancellations or interruptions. And again, hearing from our sports medicine advisory, that indoor competition and practice is something to really be thoughtful about and, and put as many safety protocols in place as possible. That's Minnesota State High School Executive Director Eric Martens and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. 
That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. Minnesota.